This week I, I heard a story uh, about a guy named Josh Farron who was closing on his house, and during that closing meeting, he got the keys to his new house, and, and during the proceedings, he was able to leave for a little bit and go and kind of look at his house for the first time officially, just to walk through it, and, and you know that when you walk through that house for the first time, you're thinking, well, that's got to go. I'm going to paint that for sure. When did they get that carpet? And, and so Josh is just looking in this house, and he gets to the garage, and there's this little door in the ceiling, and there's a piece of shaggy carpet coming out from it. And so he gets a ladder, and he opens this little door, and he looks up in there, and there's this little black box. It's this heavy metal box that was used in World War II to haul ammunition. And I would, if I, I'm super pumped if I would find that. Like, who would not be find that, pumped about that? And so he brings it down, he opens it up, and listen, it was full of cash. Full of cash. Later they would find out it's $45,000 worth of money in this box. There's certificate, bond certificates, there's memorabilia, there's stamps in it. And listen, he gave it all back. He gave it all of it back. Farron said, you can't make plans for money like this. It just doesn't feel right to do anything but give it back. And so immediately he closed it back up, he put it in his truck, he called his wife, and she agreed, we can't keep this. The problem was, is the homeowner, a guy named Arnold, passed away in 2010, in November, and his youngest son, Dennis, just completed the paperwork in the closing that gave the house and everything in it to Joshua Farron. They spent three hours looking through this box and counting the money, and in it he taught his son's the characteristic of honesty as they kept saying, Dad, can we just keep one stack? Just one stack for myself. And they tried to put coins in their pocket. And Farron said to the reporter who was doing this story, he says, the house needs work. And certainly $45,000 would help remodel this house. But Farron said this about the previous owner. I think these are really good words. He says he didn't save the money for us. He saved it for his family. I never considered it to be mine. You can't allow yourself to think like that. What a surprising story of integrity and honor and trustworthiness. Maybe you might have chosen to do something different in that scenario. Maybe you might have decided to keep it. And I'm not judging anybody if you decided to keep that in your head. But what a remarkable perspective this young father brings to us today. And what a remarkable lesson that he taught his children in the moment. He didn't save that money for us. He saved it for his family. I never considered it to be mine. You can't ever allow yourself to think like that. Today, as we walk into chapter 24 of Joshua, the very last chapter in Joshua, Joshua's last word before he dies at the age of 110, Joshua spends the first 13 verses of Joshua 24 compelling to the nation the journey that they had been on by God's hand and God's hand alone. How it came to pass that the entire nation would come into this promised land. Talks about a God who was with them in all the twists and turns, all the miracles and all the mercies, who despite their disobedience chose not to turn his back on them, even though even in our will today he would have been just to do so. 
God has always preserved their path by his hand. He saved them even from themselves time and time again. And Joshua in 24 would compel to them a seemingly remarkable perspective that echoes Joshua Farron's perspective to his boys. How could we ever, in knowing what we know, claim this life to be ours? How could we, in knowing what God has done for us, ever think that this life was ours to operate? And then he gives them this divine choice in the moment to choose to follow after the Lord or not. But they must choose either to follow or to walk away. And so this is where we pick up our text in Joshua 24 and verse 14. And we'll read this together. It says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your father, your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is holy. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. And then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves, that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. And he said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you, and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. In this text, we find that very famous stencil that rests above many people's dining room tables that says, as far as this house, we will serve the Lord. That's a packed statement that we'll talk about later, but that sits in a lot of homes in America. So Joshua, in his final days, has gathered the nation from all its parts, all of its land, to come to the city called Shechem, Shechem's an important city to the nation of Israel. It, it sits between two mountains. It's in a valley. The whole nation gathers there, all the leaders, all the elders, and Joshua gives them words there. This isn't the first time that Joshua has spoken to his people in Shechem. He spoke there when they began their conquest in Joshua 8. It's there that he reads the law. He bleeds the blessings and the cursing. He makes an altar to the Lord. And this nation, this, this city serves not just to be important because of Joshua, it's important because of Abraham. Shechem is the first city that Abraham stepped into from the land of Ur when he came into the land of Canaan. Abraham built an altar there to the Lord. It was there in this city that God first promised the Israelites 
the land that they now possess. Abraham gives birth to Isaac. Isaac gives birth to Jacob. Jacob makes a well in Shechem. You can go and see that well today. It's there. This is the same well that many believe is talked about in the Gospel of John and John 4 when Jesus visits the Samaritan woman at the well. Shechem is one of the refuge cities that we talked about last week where grace could be found for those who were condemned but innocent in the land. And it is in this city that Joshua would lay out the way, the promise that was fulfilled in his departing words, words from a substantially worthy man to us and to them. Words that express choice and commitment to and from the nation of Israel. And as they left this city, they were to remember the past and live in light of it. A past that wasn't about them. It wasn't there for them to boast in themselves, but rather that they would, because of it, dedicate themselves to the one that made it all possible. And that choice is ours as well, seemingly every day of our lives. We too, as we live the lives that God has given us, should remember where God brought us from that in His grace He took us from the downhill slope towards destruction into relationship with His Son, we should remember how God in His grace has taken care of us since that moment despite ourselves and our disobedience. In the light of God's faithfulness to us in our past, we should personally renew our commitment to Him today, tomorrow, and every day. That is Joshua's challenge to his people here in Shechem. And it's a good one that we heed here as well today. Because the question is asked of us today. Will we choose to serve the Lord? Or will we choose to walk away? Because here's the reality. You will have to choose. You just will. Just like our ancestors, God lays out in Joshua this imperative in verse 14 that you will have to choose who you will serve either the Lord your God or some other pagan God. And note that when Joshua is talking about these other gods, he's not in fact saying there are other gods. He's saying there are other gods that people believe in that are fake. And we know this because later on in that verse he says, if you choose to serve them, just know I'm going to consume you. But it's still your choice. You have an option there. It's not a good option, but it's an option nonetheless. It's sort of like if somebody came up to me and offered me pizza or beet salad. I'm not picking beet salad. I don't like beets. I don't really like salad. Put them together. It doesn't make it better. Why would you not choose pizza? This is the choice that we have. On one hand, a magnificent, forgiving, graceful, powerful, loving, mighty God, full of justice and truth. And on the other hand, we can choose to follow gods of this world that at the end of the day promise to redeem and uplift you, but at the end of the day, all they do is take life and destroy you. And Jesus reminds us of this very choice in the Gospel of Matthew when he talks about serving masters. In Matthew 6, Jesus writes this, that no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
In this context, Jesus is talking about the God of money. But for us, there are many gods in which we have to choose whether we're going to have or be mastered by, we're going to choose to serve. And they are, compared to the God of the Bible, wimpy, insignificant, and full of decay. They are beet salad. And we will all have to make a choice to serve one of them, but we will not choose to serve none of them. You will serve something. You will serve something. God, or pick your poison. But you will, like a slave, serve something as a master. It is engineered in your DNA to serve something. No one can escape it. And for the majority of us, because of our broken flesh of sin, we will always default to choosing ourselves as our own God. We will choose ourselves as our own authority, as our own master, as our own sovereign. It is a God that I like to call the God of open options. That the only commitment that we truly make in our lives is committing ourselves to pursuing whatever brings me the most pleasure in my life, in the moments that I'm in. We want to put as many hands and feet in as many cookie jars as we possibly can in order that we might, by it, find fulfillment in one of them. There's an author author called, uh, his name is Barry Cooper, and he writes this article called The Problems of Your Choices. And I want to lean into what some of you said uh, today. He says this. He says, We are seemingly unable or unwilling to make a choice. We want to hedge our bets, sit on the fence, keep our options open. We would prefer not to make an ironclad, no-turning-back choice, one where, but rather one that we could back out if, of if needed. Do you ever find yourself afraid to commit? You ever get a wedding invite and think, eh, I'm not really sure what I'm going to do with that. I'm just going to let it ride. Maybe. Is that a box? You ever keep your smartphone on in every situation, even in meetings, so you're never fully available or present in any scenario, any moment? Even today after church, will, will the person that you talk to, will they be the person that you engage with, or are you going to be looking over their shoulders for a better conversation partner? If we do that, we may recognize that we're serving the God of open options. We wait to declare for majors. Uh, We only go to stores that have guaranteed return policies. We reserve the right to keep our options open in almost every department of our life, from sex to spirituality. Barry Schwartz is an author. He writes this book called The Paradox of Choice, and he says this. He says, the number of choices available to us becomes overwhelming and actually makes it difficult for us to ever have the joy of fully committing to anything or anyone, because even if we commit, our culture makes us feel dissatisfied with the choices that we've made. I just experienced this this week. I was at Starbucks, and I ordered my drink, and the guy behind me ordered his drink at a temperature. He ordered his drink at 140 degrees. I didn't know I had that choice. I was, in, I was envious the moment that he said it. I, I can determine my degree. I was dissatisfied with my drink from that moment. And so look, it's easy to look at people in Joshua 24 and say, how would they ever make any decision that's different from following the Lord, especially for what he's done in their life? Yet for many of us, 
We are worshiping the very God that Christ triumphed over. And we know that they are defeated gods that will only drag us into death, but yet we serve them. We worship the God of open options. And listen, it is killing us. It is killing us. He kills our relationships because he tells us that it's better not to be too involved here, just in case. He kills our service to others because, hey, I need to keep my weekends open because something might pop up here. He kills our giving because he tells us in these uncertain financial times that it's better to hold some back because there might be an emergency that comes. He kills our joy in Christ because he tells us it's better not to be thought too spiritual. I don't want to be too religious. I don't want to be that guy. Friends, we have to make a choice. We have to examine our choices. Because could you imagine if God operated with open options the way that we do? All that we would, could expect in that is eternal torment. What if Jesus said, you know, I may save you. I may not. Show me something. I may give you the promise. I may not. What are you going to give me? Oh, beet salad. Thank you. I don't want it. No, God chose. The word says that he chose us in him before the creation of the world. He chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He chose you to be saved by grace. And he hasn't waffled on his choice to die for you. Friends, I would say that we need to choose the God of infinite possibilities who chose to limit himself to a particular time, a particular pace, place, a particular group of people. Choose the God who closed off all of his alternatives to pursue after one bride, the church. Choose the God who did not choose to come off the cross until he said it was finished. And when you make that commitment, we have to follow through. Joshua would make a very poor evangelist because he reminds the nation of everything that God has done for them and he says make a choice and what do they do yes we will Joshua doesn't say hey count it all count them count the numbers all right go tell everybody celebrate 100% conversion here what does Joshua say no you won't no you won't You can't serve him. He's holy. No, you won't. And he's not saying this to discourage them, but he's reminding them of their own inability to do exactly what they're saying they're going to do. Their service, their performance will be never acceptable to God. He is holy. The only thing that they can do is appeal to his grace and his mercy and his strength to assist them. It has to be about him helping us do what he commands of us. And that will be Christ, and we'll talk about that. But we have to commit to following through by his grace, his mercy, and his strength. Because listen, you have to follow through because it's not about you. You must follow through and not just for yourself. Please understand that your choice and commitment to follow through does not end with you. 
It's not about you. It's not just for yourself. It's about those who will follow after you. When Joshua responds to whether he will choose the Lord, he never says, I will choose to follow him. I. Now, what does Joshua say? Me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so today, I want to take a pause and speak to you young men in this crowd and those of you who are already fathers here this morning. Understand this, in God's good, right, flourishing design for his people, he designed roles for both men and women. Our worth, our integrity, our, our dignity, our value remain the same across gender lines. But, but God has carved out different roles in his beautiful design for all of us. And God has willed it and created it that men would shepherd and lead their homes not as though they are hoarding power and authority over anybody like a dictator, but rather they would serve the welfare and the good of all who are under and around them. Not in a way that you are a dictator, but in the way that Jesus commands us in Scripture that men, you are to love your wives as Christ loves the church. What did Christ do for the church? He died for it. Men, we are to sacrifice, we are to love and die for our families, for our wives. That's how much we are to serve them. You serve them. They don't serve you. There is something that happens when men lead with Christ in their heart that changes the family. And maybe you just hear my words and you don't believe me, but listen to what your world tells you. These are statistics that come from Lifeway. It says this, if a if hundred kids will come to church and commit their lives to Christ, of those hundred kids, you'll see 20 to 25 families get involved with the local church. If a hundred wives comes to church and they sit, commit their lives to Christ, 20 families will come into the church. But if a hundred fathers come to church, if they would commit their lives to Christ, 97 families would follow them into the church. There is a design that is good, right for our flourishing. It's not about dominance. It's about flourishing. And so when Joshua says, me and my house, we will serve the Lord, he's saying, I will invest the energy, the love, the time, and the resources into my family to make it so because the buck stops with me. When we as men take passive roles in our family's life, all sorts of dysfunction happens. You want to tell me a problem in the world? I will link it to passive men in the household. Don't speak that to devalue women. We all share the burden of discipling. We all are to pass it down. We all share in that. Ladies, if your man or if that man is not going to do it, you have everything that you need in Christ to do it. But it's we moms and dads who are charged with lifting up our children, discipling our children's. It's not about the church. It's not their job. It's not about a program. It's not their job. It's my job, Nikki and me, to raise Camille and Ellie to be followers of Jesus. Me and my household, we will serve the Lord. 
And when we talk about serve, I think it's important that we discuss what it actually means. What is Joshua getting to by talking about service? So please understand this. I think this is important. I think that we get off track here. You will not serve unto God. You will serve because of God. You will not serve unto God. You will serve because of God. Don't ever confuse the idea of serving God with the idea that you're giving something to God of value that he needs. God has not asked you to serve him so that you can help him become happier. Well, finally, Jim did what I was asking him to. I feel so much better. God needs nothing from you and I. He is perfect, majestic. He lacks nothing. Your service doesn't give him more of anything. The word reminds us of this. In Acts 10, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Mark, in his gospel, he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Just think about this in this whole story of Joshua and Joshua's service to God. What did God get? Nothing but a bunch of disobedient sinners. Who got all the benefits? The people. Your service is not about giving anything to God. I think that we create a lot of confusion with misunderstanding or not understanding specifically the difference between obeying God and serving God. Webster defines to obey as to comply to a command, a desire, a rule. It's to submit to the authority of. Serve is defined as performing duties and services for. I think that we can feel comforted with our stencil art above our tables that we will serve the Lord because we think that when we pray or choose to do something right or abstain from sin or choose our words wisely that we have somehow served the Lord in a manner of speaking. That God has this list of things that he needs that you might serve him with in a way to make it easier for him to, serve, to, to, to be satisfied and to save you. It's a belief that we have this cosmic God with a clipboard that's just up there with boxes waiting to be checked for you to give him what he wants so he can save you or be more satisfied in you. That's not serving. He doesn't need to be served. His death on the cross actually shows you this. You needed to be removed from the equation because you could never give God to what, what he needed. Jesus' death on the cross says you could never give to God what he needs. Only Jesus can do that. Serving is not heeding the word of God in behaviors because of his commands. It's not obeying so that it would go well with us and think that we're somehow giving something to God. Like, I pray today, God, here's a cookie. Obeying God is about flourishing in his good and right design. It's not about giving God something of value. Serving is doing something because of God, in his strength, for his glory and his good name. Not to make God more pleased with you. He is already well pleased with you in Christ. 
1 Peter 4 writes this, If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength of God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. Who? Anyone who serves. How? Through the strength of God. What for? For the glory of Christ. To serve God is understanding that Jesus has checked all of the boxes that we needed to make us acceptable to God. And because he so lovingly and willfully absorbed our punishment for our sin and made us right in the eyes of God, you serve him in a way that shows the world what you have already received in relationship with him. Serving God is about what you already have and displaying it to the world that they may come to know the beauty and the glory and the might of the God that saved you. Not that you could give anything to him. And listen, you were designed for nothing more than to bring glory to God. That through him, in you, he may redeem the world. And listen, we are most satisfied in our lives when we are doing what we were made to do. And we serve God because we deeply enjoy, intimately enjoy relationship with him. We enjoy God. We celebrate God. And when we do acts of service in that realm, because of him, they are deeply satisfying. And so the same value that Joshua Ferens showed his boys, the same understanding that Joshua imparts unto the nation of Israel must be the joy of our lives. It must be the joy of our life that what was given to me on this earth was never mine to own. I can never allow myself to think that way. It has always been about him. And I must choose to go all in for him. And I must follow through and serve him. And maybe you're in here today and that motivates you and you're like, yes. And let me just be Joshua to you. No, you won't. No, you won't. You will always pick the beet salad. The world makes you think that the beet salad is better than God, but it's not. You will always pick the beet salad. You need a new heart. You need a new desire. The only way that you follow through, that you commit to to following after God is because what Christ affords to you. The pattern of Scripture is that relationship comes first with God's people and it produces obedience. Obedience never produces relationship. It is only out of your relationship with a loving God who absorbed your wrath, who has given you grace that's not your own, despite your disobedience, that you can even come close to choosing to follow after the Savior. It's only in His grace that allows you failure and disobedience to get yourself back up and try again. So friends, I don't want you to hear me give you a motivational message today about choosing Wiley's. I want you to hear me give a message about surrender in relationship to Christ because He's the only way through it. And so together we gather around these tables to come and enjoy God's, the Lord's Supper, 
to reflect on what it truly means that Christ died on the cross for us. That we remember His body torn on the cross through the bread and through the juice that we would remember the blood that atoned for our sins. That we remember that God imputed to us a righteousness, a standing in front of God that wasn't ours. And if we're ever going to please God, it has to come through being hidden in Christ and being enabled by His love and His grace. And so today I ask you to take time to seek forgiveness in your heart where you need to find it. If you have never given your life over to the Lord, if you've never experienced His grace and His mercy, then today is that day for you, my friend. I pray that God would push on your heart. But let us all take some time to reflect on the glory of God, on the beauty of His name, on what He has done for us that it might inform the way that we live. Your flesh in this world says, do. The gospel says, done. It's about you believing that and moving forward in His grace and His mercy into a relationship with the Holy God. And so take your time. Get your heart right with God. If you're in here today and you haven't made a decision to follow after the Lord, look, we love that you're here, but just know this. Like, this is a time for family to come together and worship a king, admire a king, celebrate a king. And so if that's you, just know that it's okay to not partake in the emblems. Just sit and reflect. Would you pray with me? Father, we just come before you today and we praise you for the mercy and the grace that we have in Christ that we can hear Joshua say, no, you can't. And we can say, I know, I can't. But he can. And that God, through surrender, that you would give us the grace every day to choose you. Because we can't. Give us new hearts and new desires. Convict our hearts, Lord, move us where you want us. Let your word shine through. And we pray this in the holy name of Christ, our Lord. Amen.